So it's always a pleasure to be preaching. Um, it's a pleasure for me because it means Rick and Tammy get a break, and that's important to me. Um, but just so you know, he sent us a text letting us know that he's praying for us. Uh, they're going to be worshiping up at um, Alistair Begg's church this morning, so I'm glad that they get to do that. Um, now this morning we're going to be looking at a couple different texts, and uh, we're going to lean heavily on Luke 24. So if you would, turn to Luke 24 with me. You should already be there from our call to worship, or our scripture memory verse, rather. It takes us to page 884. And as you're finding your place, if you need to find your place, let's just put this in context. Context, 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 right? Something we always got to be eager to do. So in chapter 23... Luke is giving his account of Jesus' trial before Pilate, the crucifixion, the death and burial of Jesus. And then at the beginning of 24, he's going to give us his account of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And that's going to lead us right up to our reading this morning, which begins in verse 13, which is the road to Emmaus. So if you will read with me, starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our, of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going to go further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, and blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. 
Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, this morning, we recognize our need for you. Lord, we recognize that we need you to open up the eyes of our heart to see and hear your word appropriately and correctly. And Father, we pray that you would do that. Father, I pray that you would guide me in this message, Father, to bring your word correctly. And I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So let's begin this morning with a question. If someone approached you, might be somebody you know, might be a total stranger, and asked, hey, you're a Christian, right? Tell me, how do I make sense of the Bible? I've started reading it for myself, and I'm getting into all these really grand stories, but I'm having trouble putting it together. I mean, I guess I understand the parts about Jesus, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but I mean, what's up with that Old Testament, right? What's the deal with that guy Abraham climbing a mountain to sacrifice his son, Isaac? What's up with Moses holding up a bronze serpent in the wilderness for people to be healed after God sent the snakes to bite them? I mean, what's the point of this little kid named David killing a giant named Goliath? I guess they're all cool stories, but I don't get the point. How do you answer? How do we make sense of all these various parts of the Bible? All these various random, seemingly random things we come across in the Bible. And, you know, for the longest time, I think in my own life, I viewed these stories strictly as moral lessons. So each one of them represented a type of person that I was supposed to emulate, type of person I was supposed to be like, or their actions in the story represented a type of behavior I was supposed to strive for in my own life. So dare to be a Daniel, you know, slay the giants in your life like David. And, and though it's true, many of those stories, if, if not most of those stories, they provide this excellent example of faith and obedience towards the Lord. That's not the only point of these stories. So it's a point, but not the point. And so this morning, my goal for us is to think through this question biblically. How do we make sense of Scripture? Um, Particularly the Old Testament, particularly those parts that I think can seem tricky. How does it all fit together And to start doing that, I'd like to use a quick analogy. Have you ever seen the movie A Christmas Story? You know, the story with you'll shoot your eye out. Well, if you have, you might remember the scene where little Ralphie, the kid with the glasses, he receives this official little orphan Annie secret circle letter. And so he comes home from school, he checks the mailbox, and he excitedly realizes his letters finally come, and he opens it, and of course, he reads how he's part of this elite club, right? And then included in the letter is something really special. It's his decoder ring. And he can't wait to use it, so he's waiting until the end of the broadcast, he's listening on the radio, and they give him the secret code. Of course, he's writing it down, and he's just certain that little orphan Annie's given him this like top-secret message that only he will know as being part of the club. And he runs to the bathroom, he locks the door, because they told him to keep it secret. So he locks the door, and then he uses his decoder ring to unlock this top-secret message, only to read, do you guys remember? 
be sure to drink your Ovaltine. A little disappointed, you know, to say the least. And look, understand the analogy is not perfect, okay? But I think it helps. So just like Ralphie needed a decoder ring to understand little orphan Annie's message, we need a decoder ring to understand scripture. Not some sort of gadget, like the ring itself, or some sort of like secret knowledge. No, you see, Jesus Christ is actually how we make sense of the entirety of scripture. He's the key. Or in this analogy, he's the decoder ring. So, I think that's easy to see in the New Testament, um, because we're always reading about his birth. We're reading about his life, his death, the resurrection. It's obvious. But he's also the key to understanding the Old Testament. And when we recognize how all of Scripture, including that Old Testament, speaks about Christ, our hearts will really overflow with this wonder because we're going to see God's unfailing and redeeming love towards his people. And we'll unpack that this morning. Um, so unlike Ralphie, who's disappointed, when we see Jesus as the decoder ring and key, we're going, to be, we're going to be caught in wonder. So listen to this quote from Dr. Ian Duguid. And Dr. Ian Duguid is actually an Old Testament scholar. Uh, if you have an ESV study Bible this morning, he wrote the notes for Daniel and Zechariah. And um, he's an ARP pastor, and he's a friend of this church. Uh, he says something I think is really helpful about seeing Christ in the Old Testament. He writes, The Old Testament is not primarily a book about ancient history or culture. It contains many things that are historical and that describe ancient cultures. Centrally, the Old Testament is a book about Christ. And more specifically, about his sufferings and the glories that will follow. That is, it is a book about the promise of a coming Messiah through whose sufferings God will establish his glorious eternal kingdom. To say this is simply to repeat what Jesus told those discouraged disciples on the road to Emmaus from our text this morning. Look at verse 25 in our text. So to say all of what I just read is to simply repeat what Jesus told the discouraged disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. So let's look at this passage in Luke a little bit closer. You'll recall, beginning of Luke 24, Luke is giving his account of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And beginning in verse 13, we're given this fly-on-a-wall's perspective of a conversation between two disciples discussing the events of the recent, the recent week, which would have been the last week of Jesus' life. His trials, His crucifixion, His burial... And now they have this news that the tomb is empty. I mean, this is giving them a lot to talk about, right? And they do this while they're traveling to a village called Emmaus. But as they walk, they're joined by this unlikely guest. And if you look at verse 15, who joins them? While they're talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. 
I mean, how crazy is that, right? The very person they're discussing, think about this. They're talking about everything that just happened about Jesus. He joins their walk. But what happens in the next verse? Their eyes are kept from recognizing him. They don't know that it's him. So actually, I think what transpires next is really great because they don't know it's Jesus. So Jesus asked the two, what's this conversation you're having all about? I mean, as if he doesn't know, right? And look what happens in verse 17. And they stood still looking sad. They literally stopped walking at shock in this statement. Like, like almost saying, are you kidding? You're like, where have you been? Everyone knows what happened. And then in verse 18, one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, Jesus, what things? It's like he's reeling them in, right? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And that last line gives you a real glimpse into where they're at. I mean, these two, they're sad, right? Their spirits, we can almost deduce their spirits are broken because they believed and truly hoped that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And that meant in their minds, he would deliver his people, who were the Jews, from their Roman oppression, and that he would reestablish that earthly kingdom, the theocracy. So remember, these people, they've been living in oppression for many, many years. To have the hope of freedom all of a sudden removed, I mean, it would have really been earth-shattering to them. Then in verses 22-24, the two explained to Jesus the recent news that Jesus' tomb was empty. And it's at this point that Jesus is going to intervene. So in verse 25, Jesus is going to say, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And can you imagine what that would have been like? I mean, this is Jesus talking and teaching about Jesus. Um, we labor Sunday by Sunday to preach Jesus. How about having Jesus do it? There's no room for error. So Jesus, who the Apostle John tells us is the living word, the one in our call to worship, who through whom all things were made and all things hold together, he's preaching and expounding on the written word and the greatest subject in the known universe, himself. I mean, wow. And I think he gives us an example about how he does it. So how does he go about expounding upon himself? What does he expound on? What is he preaching? Well, first off, in verse 25, he corrects these people for not realizing that the prophets had spoken about him all along. So in verse 25, he's going to say, Oh, foolish ones. Oh, slow of heart to believe, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. And then what's he saying in 27? He's going to go through the Old Testament with Moses and the prophets and then all of Scripture 
show them himself in the Old Testament. So in other words, Jesus is telling them this. Your Old Testament is about me. Moses, your prophets, all of Scripture, it's talking about me. And I love how Dr. Vern Poitras states it. He says, when the Bible says that he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and that's going to happen later in Luke 24, verse 45, it cannot mean just a few scattered predictions about the Messiah. We've been hearing about those predictions in Isaiah, as Rick's been preaching Isaiah. It can't just mean those. It means the Old Testament as a whole, encompassing all three major divisions of the Old Testament that the Jews traditionally recognized. And at the heart of understanding all these Old Testament books is the truth that they point forward to the suffering of Christ, his resurrection, and the subsequent spread of the gospel to all nations. So the Old Testament as a whole, through its promises, its symbols, and its pictures of salvation, look forward to the actual accomplishment of salvation that took place where? At the cross of Calvary, in Jesus Christ himself. So with this in mind, with this idea that all of Scripture is about Christ, I'd like to look at some examples in the Old Testament that hopefully will tie some of this together for us. And I don't think it'll be new to you this morning. Uh, this is really something I think Rick does week to week. Okay, so our examples this morning are going to be what we called, or what we call, Old Testament types of Christ. Now when I say a type of Christ, does anyone have any idea what I mean? And if not, that's okay, because that's what we're going to try to deal with this morning. So the New Testament is constantly talking about Christ, right? Constantly talking about the salvation he's brought. And I feel like it's very obvious. It's very obvious to see how they're talking about Jesus. This is also true in the Old Testament, but it's explained in a slightly less obvious way. It's explained by way of anticipation, okay? So the Old Testament is going to give us shadows and types of things that are going to come. Now, we need to deal with this word type, and we'll go back to Dr. Poitras real quick. He says, this is definition, so stick with me. He says, when we talk about types in the Bible, we're referring to a special example, a symbol, or a picture that God has designed beforehand. And then he placed it in history at an earlier point in time to point forward to a later, larger fulfillment. Need an example? Examples are good, right? So animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they weren't an end in themselves, were they? No. They pointed to something else, didn't they? Um, they were real. They happened, they were important, but they were pointing to the final sacrifice of Christ, our Passover lamb. Um, the Old Testament priests were types of Christ because they pointed to our final high priest, who was Jesus Christ, who sat down at the right hand of the Father which the high priest could never do because they could never make that last and final sacrifice. So these Old Testament types that we're talking about, they're going to find fulfillment in Christ. They are real. I mean, we need to be very certain to say these are real things. 
It's not that everything in the Old Testament was like this fictitious allegory. No, they really happened, but they point to something better. So, with that in mind, let's look at some examples. Um, And we'll deal with the questions posed by our hypothetical friend, okay? So first, what's up with Moses holding up a bronze serpent in the wilderness for people to be healed after God sent the snakes to bite them? Let's deal with that, shall we? So turn with me to Numbers 21. Because how could that possibly be a type of Christ, right? Numbers 21. Go backwards. Uh, We're actually going to be on 129. We're going to read verses 4 through 9 in Numbers 21. So Israel's been wandering the wilderness for nearly 40 years. They're getting ready to go to the promised land, but they can't seem to get over this bad habit they have of grumbling and complaining. Okay? So read with me. Verse 4, Numbers 21. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. It's pretty heavy stuff, right? Now, I promise this is going to make sense, but turn with me now to John 3. John chapter 3. And we're going to actually pick up right about verse 9. But again, for context, in this chapter, this is the chapter where that Pharisee Nicodemus comes to see Jesus. And he does so in the night, and he quickly finds himself in this perplexing conversation about being born again. And he can't seem to wrap his mind around that. And it brings him to the point in verse 9 where he asks Jesus, how can these things be? And look what Jesus' reply is, starting in verse 10. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And listen to this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, there's a lot there, plenty enough for another sermon, and we're not going to get caught in those other details, but you caught the reference, right? I mean, it's an obvious reference to that serpent in the wilderness. And do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's clearly making this connection, this link between himself and that bronze serpent in the wilderness. And he's doing so to a Pharisee 
Who would have known that story? Who wouldn't have been surprised by that story? He's making it clear that that episode in history with the bronze serpent was pointing forward to a greater reality. Him. And I love these parallels. Listen to these parallels. The bronze serpent was God's means of salvation for the Israelites who were bitten by the serpents in the wilderness. Jesus Christ crucified is God's means of salvation for everyone who has been bitten by the deadly venom of sin in the wilderness of this fallen world. The bronze serpent was a visual representation of the wrath of God against that grumbling and complaining people. Christ crucified is a visual representation of the wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The bronze serpent represented the propitiation of the wrath of God, the satisfaction. Whoever looked at the serpent would know that God's wrath was turned away. The cross of Christ displays the wrath of God as well as the turning away of that wrath. The bronze serpent was meant to remind the Israelites of the cause of their sin. It was meant to carry their minds back to, remember that garden in Eden where the serpent first betrayed them? The punishment for their sin brought into the world through that temptation of that old serpent was laid on Jesus at the cross. The penalty for our sin fell on him. He became sin so that we could become his righteousness. The serpent was lifted up before the Israelites in the midst of the camp so that those who were bitten might look and be healed. Christ was lifted up first on the cross, then in his resurrection, then in his ascension to heaven, and every Sunday as we preach the gospel so that sinners might look to him and be saved. Just as looking to the bronze serpent was a foolish means of healing poison Israelites, so looking to a crucified Savior is a foolish means in the world's eyes for the salvations of sinners condemned to death. Isn't that beautiful? I find that to be really, really beautiful. Let's look at one more example in greater detail again. Turning to our questioning friend, what's the point of that little kid named David killing a giant named Goliath? And I mean, I guess it's a cool story, but what's the big deal? Well, if you remember the story of David and Goliath takes place in 1 Samuel 17, it is a long story. You're welcome to turn there and follow along, but we're not going to read it in detail. And it's arguably one of the best known stories in all the Bible, right? You say David and Goliath, people know what you're talking about. In the story, Israel's under the leadership of King Saul, and they're gathered for battle against their enemy, the Philistines. And each were on their own mountain with a valley between them, and for 40 days, the Philistines would send out their champion, Goliath, who's this monster of a man. I mean, biblically, he's said to be over nine feet tall. And he's going to challenge Israel's champion to a fight. And his proposition went like this. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So the problem here is that that King Saul, he's the one who's supposed to go face Goliath. But guess what? He's afraid and he doesn't want to do it. So in comes David, who's a young, really a young boy at the time. David is sent to battle by his father, Jesse. He's sent to give his older brothers who are soldiers food. He's not sent to go fight. But while there, what do you think he hears? 
He hears Goliath come out and challenge Israel. Only unlike the others, he's not afraid. On the contrary, he gets angry that this guy is blaspheming God and his people. And before you know it, he's volunteering to fight Goliath before Saul, his king. And this makes his older brother, who should be one of the ones who's willing to fight Goliath, get really angry and start accusing him of all these false things. So meanwhile, Saul blesses David to go fight uh, Goliath, and he actually tries to put his armor on him. I think in the back of his mind, he's thinking, bro, you don't stand a chance. But David, he's a young man. It doesn't fit. He strips the armor off, and he goes to battle with his staff. He's a shepherd, five smooth stones, and a sling. And he meets Goliath on the battlefield. He strikes him in the head with a stone. Goliath tumbles to the ground. He takes Goliath's sword, and he cuts Goliath's head head off with his own sword. Now, there's lots of application there as it relates to our faith in Christ, obedience in Christ, absolutely. But, what else can we glean from this story? First, the battle between David and Goliath is a representative battle, okay? Whoever wins the battle wins it for the people he represents. Every other battle is between multiple people and armies, So right away, we have this unique situation where there's two two representatives coming to a head representing their people. David represents the people of God. Goliath represents the people of Satan and his kingdom. And the only other battle of this kind recorded in Scripture is between Christ and the devil. David is the only one able to face Goliath on the battlefield, even though there's nothing about him physically that would seem to make that the case. Jesus is the only one able to face the devil, even though it seems he's powerless to do so. David is sent by his father to his brothers. Jesus is sent by his father to his brothers. David's brothers reject him, mock him, and accuse him of having evil motives. Jesus' brothers, national Israel, what did they do? Rejected him, mocked him, accused him of having evil motives. David's meek and God-fearing, even though he's going to battle, and in spite of this rejection... Jesus was meek and God-fearing in spite of his brother's rejection, in spite of the cross. David doesn't trust in human strength. He trusts in the name of the Lord. Jesus doesn't trust in his human strength. He trusts in the name of the Lord. David is not first and foremost concerned about the men. He's concerned about God's glory. He's zealous for the glory of the Lord. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. Glorify him. David goes forth to war as a shepherd with a shepherd's staff and a shepherd's bag. Jesus goes forth to war as a good shepherd. And finally, David defeats his enemy with his own weapon, Goliath's sword. Jesus defeats Satan with his own weapon, the cross. I mean, in short, this isn't just a story about a little boy defeating this giant of a man, even though that's true. Or it's not just a story of Israel defeating its enemies, Even though that's true, David, even though he was a sinful man, we know he was not a perfect man, is a type of Christ that points to the ultimate victory of Jesus over sin and death. It's the crushing of the serpent referenced all the way back in Genesis 3.15, where Jesus tells that serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. David and his victory point to a greater king and a greater victory. Namely, Jesus 
in the cross where sin was dealt for once and for all. I mean, isn't that, that's just incredible to me. I hope you find that just incredible that this scripture we read is not just his, history. It's history with a purpose. You know, that, that to me is so fascinating. Now let's look one last time to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Turn back to Luke 24. And let's look at verse 30. And let's see what happens when Jesus finally reveals himself to them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And what happens? Their eyes are opened and they recognize them. And then he vanishes from their sight. But listen to this. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? I don't know about you. When I hear these allusions to Christ in the Old Testament, it fills my heart with so much wonder. It fills my heart to worship. Because as we understand scripture in light of Christ, we begin to realize the awesomeness of God. We see that God has been working since Genesis to create a people to be in relationship with Him. Adam blew it, for sure. We blow it every day. I mean, we are sinful creatures who rebel against our Creator. We think we know better than Him what is best for our lives. But here's the amazing part. If you're in Christ this morning, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation Ephesians 1 tells us that we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And he chose us before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless to be adopted into his family. So get this. Before time began, God had planned to adopt you into his family. At the sacrifice of his son, in spite of your rejection for him. And these stories are all part of making that possible. Every story we read is moving towards Christ to make it possible to be part of his family. I mean, that is incredible love. So in closing, I'd like to read you something from a little Bible I have for my kids. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible because it does such a beautiful job of stating what, what I've attempted to say here says, now some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and at times they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about the story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, 
But all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. Christ is the center of Scripture. And as we understand Christ, we can better understand what's going on in our Old Testament. So let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for who you are, Lord. I thank you for the majesty that we see as we open up our Bible of you working out history to your own ends, to gather a people for yourself, people who are not worthy of your love. Lord, I thank you that these stories in the Old Testament aren't just stories to make us work harder, to make us strive for your love. Father, yes, they're stories of people who did brave things at times, but Father, ultimately they point to a great Savior. And this morning, Father, we thank you that you condescended to send Jesus Christ as a man to take on flesh, to take on our sin so that we can be made right and justified before you. Lord, we thank you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.